I'm Helen Watson, CEO of the UK Wealth Management Business, and I'm joined today by our Global Investment Strategist, Kevin Gardner, and our Co-Head of Portfolio Management, Hugo Kekukio. As usual, we sit down at the end of the quarter to discuss the last three months of macro, market and portfolio activity. The first quarter of 2021 has seen sustained economic and epidemiological, I'm glad I got that right, recovery, facilitated by uh, global vaccination programmes, continued government stimulus and growing confidence, it would seem, amongst both consumers and investors. However, we've also seen a number of dramatic headlines as fears of recovery-related inflation persist. There's also a growing debate over the future of technology stocks, as well as concerns over diverging vaccination and recovery rates between regions and countries. So, Kevin, starting with you, how would you best describe the shifts we've seen in markets so far this year? Well, thanks, Helen. Well, looking back on 2020, if that was a bad year for people, but a good year for bonds, 2021 so far is shaping up to be the other way around. It's turning into a much better year for people, but a worse year for bonds. Stock markets, of course, are friendly with both people and bonds, if you like. Um, And so you might think that uh, stocks would be facing something of an emotional tug of war this year. But so far, at least, we've been thinking they could cope, and they certainly did in the first quarter. Turning back to the bond markets, they had a difficult quarter, led by the US Treasury market. They had a difficult quarter because interest rate expectations are beginning to rebound as investors realize that the global economy is not that fragile and inflation risk is going to pick up at some stage. It was actually the worst quarter in recent memory for the 10-year Treasury note. As I say, stocks actually were able to do pretty well. They performed pretty strongly in the quarter because that rebounding global growth is turning out to be stronger than anticipated. That's boosting expectations for corporate profits, and that's making stocks look less expensive than they otherwise might appear. Elsewhere in investment markets, uh, commodities also did pretty well. The big exception there probably being gold. Gold often does badly when interest rates expectations are rising, and uh, this quarter was no exception there. In currency markets, uh, the dollar stabilized and actually rallied a little. Um, But one of the best performing of the big currencies, unusually, was the pound, um, which managed to do pretty well despite the logistical uncertainties associated with the UK leaving the EU, which finally became effectively implemented, of course, at the start of this, uh, this year. Of course, not everything is plain sailing for the global economy. Um, we've still got uncertainties about the virus, particularly here in, in Europe. And uh, in continental Europe in particular, the European Commission hasn't been doing a very good job of rolling out vaccines, at least so far. So there are still some short-term uncertainties about the virus. But globally, vaccine rollouts have been proceeding. And that, together with an ongoing adaptation to a more socially distanced form of doing business, has been continuing to encourage investors and markets to look forward, to look across the valley, as we say. And even though bond markets are beginning to anticipate higher interest rates, investors can see them coming further down the road, as it were, the central banks themselves are actually adamant that for the time being, at least, they've got no intention of actually raising short-term policy rates. And in the meantime, of course, Uh, Treasury departments, particularly in the US and here in the UK, are actually offering a further short-term fiscal boost before an eventual belt tightening further down the road. And as we're speaking, it's increasingly looking 
Despite those residual virus uncertainties, it's increasingly looking as if the global and US economies have more or less regained their pre-crisis level of economic activity during the, uh, the spring of, uh, of this year. And that's confirming, as we'd hoped, that although this has been a pretty horrible, sharp economic setback, it's also proving to be a relatively short one. In fact, world trade Global exports and imports are positively booming at the moment. They were interrupted, of course, by a temporary blockage of the Suez Canal in the quarter. But uh, global export volumes are back at and above uh, their pre-crisis uh, levels. And even in Europe, where I've said there are still some residual virus uncertainties, uh, business surveys are pretty upbeat as they are across most of the rest of the, uh, the developed world. Um, at the moment. There has been some froth in capital markets, uh, in stock markets in particular. We've seen retail investor chat rooms and what are called special purpose acquisition companies. We've seen a little bit of froth around those two outside stock markets. Uh, the Bitcoin price continues to surge and it's winning more influential and arguably gullible um, admirers. So there are signs of froth out there. It's never good to see that. But so far, at least, we think those signs of froth are relatively manageable. And the US banking system in particular continues to look pretty robust. And although one big hedge fund got into difficulties during the quarter, we think that hedge funds in general have not been borrowing as recklessly as they might have done. And again, that tends to suggest that banking and systemic risk generally at the moment remains manageable. Thanks, Kevin. So, Hugo, given what Kevin said about the first three months of the year being very favourable for stocks, but not so much for bonds, that should be positive for our portfolios, right? Yes, so they performed uh, very well, both in absolute terms and also relative to market returns. So all of these numbers are for balanced portfolios or the new court funds uh, for the first quarter. Sterling portfolios up around 5%, dollar portfolios up around 6%, and the euro portfolios up just under 8%. And the differences between those different portfolios are mostly due to currency movements. So the pound has been the strongest of the three currencies so far this year with the euro lagging. It's a long time since we've been able to say the pound has been the strongest of the currencies, isn't it? Um, in recent podcasts, we talked about rotation from the sort of more highly rated, those named growth stocks, such as the big technology companies, to sort of cheaper areas of the market or so-called value. It looks like that's still happening. Again, that presumably has been positive for us. Yes. So this trend has been very helpful, particularly for the directly held stocks. And the return assets, the equity component of the portfolios, was around 3% ahead of the global equity markets for the first quarter. And when we analysed the performance over the quarter, the real standouts were the financials. So Wells Fargo was up almost 30%, uh, and Lloyds and Amex were up 17%. However, the best performer was Deer & Co, up almost 40% uh, in Q1. And I think we can debate whether this was driven by a rotation into value, though, more very strong results and outlook and what looks like an improving farming cycle. And within the funds, the Albizia Opportunities Fund was up 27%, which was great to see as we'd felt for quite a while that it was due a big bounce given the depressed share prices of the underlying companies. And the other notable performer was the Lansdowne Fund, 
they have deliberately reallocated in favor of value stocks and they've been well positioned uh, um, for this year. So the Lansdowne Fund was up 12% in, uh, in the first quarter. Great. So another thing there, talking about strong financials as well, which we haven't been able to do for a while. Absolutely. Um, so how are the diversifying assets performing? Because given all of that, they don't generally perform well in rising equity markets. What have they been doing? Yes, you're absolutely right. So in rising markets, the protection tends to be a drag on performance. However, last quarter, the contribution from the diversifiers, which is the right-hand side of the portfolio, was broadly flat. The protection, the put options and funds such as the Acura fund were marked down. And this is exactly what we would expect. And the new inflation focused fund, which is largely inflation protected bonds, declined one and a half percent as real yields rose. However, this was substantially offset by strong performance from the trend following funds. In fact, one of the trends that they're well positioned for is rising bond yields uh, in any case. They're also long commodities and equities, all of which helped them return around 8% in the first quarter. Oh, very strong. Coming back to the currency, and we're joking about the pound finally seeing some strength, but what, what impact has currency had? You sort of touched on it when you looked at the sterling dollar euro balance, but perhaps you could talk about that a little bit more. Yes, so for sterling portfolios, exchange rate movements negatively impacted performance by around half a percent. And what we saw was really a mirror image of the falls in the pound after Brexit in 2016. So we had felt ever since then, really, that the pound was a bit oversold and could bounce with a fair wind behind it. And so far, this year has been that fair wind with better vaccine news probably being helpful. And also Brexit no longer dominating the, the headlines. Given these factors, we have maintained sizable currency hedges in sterling portfolios, hedging roughly half of, of our estimate of the dollar and euro exposure from the equities. And these hedges have been very helpful so far this year. For euro portfolios, currency has been beneficial as the euro has been weak. This has added around 2% to performance. And for dollar portfolios, currency hasn't really had a great deal of, 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 of an impact. So, Kevin, if we shift to looking ahead, what risks do you see? I think the most visible risk is going to be that, uh, that interest rate story, which is, which is evolving. If the global economy is doing pretty well, interest rates don't need to be this low. And the bond markets are beginning to take wind of that. And from time to time, sell-off in the bond markets may affect equities too. As I mentioned earlier, stocks are friendly both with people and bonds, as it were. And this interest rate risk, it's reflecting underlying inflation pressures beginning to reemerge. And there were bottlenecks, not just in the Suez Canal, but we've seen US ports and the semiconductor industry experiencing disruptions because of, of, of uh, jams, if you like. So th there are real risks out there associated with these interest rate uh, pressures. Um, it's, it's significant, it's not gonna go away, but for the time being, at least, the big central banks particularly the Fed in the US, they're very explicitly saying that they're in no hurry to raise official policy rates. And in the meantime, corporate expectations or expectations for corporate profits probably still on the low side. So we can imagine these risks beginning to hit equities from time to time. They'll no doubt deliver some sort of setback. But overall, we think uh, stocks can probably live with them for the time being. 
We've had quite a lot of questions from clients, um, perhaps not unsurprisingly, on uh, technology stocks. So uh, valuations, are they too toppy? The headwinds that they now perhaps face, both from tax and regulation, but also from, from the rising interest rate environment that we've talked about. And really whether there might be the sort of ripple effect on the wider markets, given that they make up such a large proportion of indices these days. So, Kevin, maybe do you want to respond first and then I'll ask Hugo to kind of cover it from a portfolio context? I think all, all those points are valid and uh, the technology sector and alongside it, the communications sector and some of the uh, companies, very visible companies like electric car manufacturers and online retailers in the consumer discretionary sector. Valuations here have run up a long way. These are pretty expensive areas, but famous last words, for the time being, they don't look to be close to being as expensive as they might have done, for example, back in 2000, at the peak of the dot-com uh, frenzy. And then, of course, interest rates were much higher than they are today, and earnings were about to take a big hit at the moment. Earnings, if anything, expectations there are a bit on the low side. So, uh, for sure, technology stocks, the sector has travelled a long way, at least from our top-down perspective on the strategy team. That's how it, uh, how it looks. And there are indeed some regulatory challenges ahead. But I don't think that uh, that necessarily poses a big headwind for the wider market. Instead, I think it, uh, it simply means, as, as Hugo was suggesting earlier, that there may be a bit more rotation within the market towards sectors which can better benefit from stronger short-term economic growth rather than the longer-term expectations which underpin technology. Hugo? Well, yes, we've certainly been conscious of valuations in the tech and, and in the broader growth arena. And in some cases, we could, we could make sense of the valuations that are being bestowed by the market. Uh, even if the assumptions around long-term growth and total addressable market sizes have seemed quite punchy. Um, in some other cases, it's been, frankly, beyond our ability to understand the valuations at all. So, for example, the aggregate valuation of the auto sector, including Tesla and other new entrants, is now far, far greater than it ever has been in the past. We just don't feel that that is particularly realistic or sustainable. We could, of course, be, uh, be wrong. So we do have exposure to tech and growth stocks, both directly through companies like Constellation Software, MasterCard, Moody's and S&P, and also through the holdings and bears and Cedarberg, such as Square or Tencent. However, at the margin, we have been reducing exposure to these areas and redeploying capital where we estimate higher forward returns. So, Kevin, as well, we've also been asked about the sort of uneven recovery. So as we see some regions escaping lockdown uh, quicker than others and therefore potentially rebounding much faster, how is that sort of shaping your kind of top down view? Well, from my sort of um, high altitude perspective, as it were, um, it's, it's been a, a factor, but it's not, uh, it's not the overwhelming factor. It's not going to remain um, as important a factor as it might have been so far. So the fastest growing regions have managed to escape lockdowns um, quickest. So China was first in and first out, and the US was never really into such a tight lockdown to begin with. And those are the regions which are really growing most briskly uh, at the moment. But the complication is that they also contain some of those really hot sectors. So technology has been flying, as we've just uh, discussed in recent, uh, in the last few years, particularly in the last six months or so, and the US and emerging Asia, they have quite a lot of technology presence there. So it's not just the distribution of economic growth, it's also the distribution of sectors that matters. And again, looking forwards, that could change 
if we now see a rotation away from some of those hot sectors towards other more cyclical areas, it might be that other parts of the global stock market do relatively well, even if their own local economies don't. In the Eurozone, for example, there are lots of industrial exporters which benefit from booming world trade, but the Eurozone economy itself at home isn't ever going to shoot the lights out. Yeah, growth doesn't necessarily lead to good stock market performance, right? We've seen that in China over many years where you would perhaps have expected better performance than than you got given the growth itself. Absolutely. Hugo, we've talked about risks, particularly inflation. You mentioned that we've added a new fund, the Inflation Focus Fund. Can you talk a little bit about how that will help protect the portfolios from inflation? Well, this is this is actually a surprisingly difficult question to answer. So the Inflation Focus Fund is made up largely of inflation-linked bonds. How these perform depends on a number of variables, so the interplay of inflation expectations, real interest rates, and supply and demand characteristics in the market. So there are scenarios where inflation expectations rise and real interest rates rise, where these bonds decline in, in, in value. And in fact, that is what we've been seeing so far this year. Where the bonds could be very valuable, though, is in a stagflationary environment with inflation expectations rising and growth or interest rate expectations falling. And this could be a really tough environment for equities. And so the inflation-linked bonds could be a really valuable hedge. Um, So secondly, how much the portfolio is covered by the portfolio protection if we look at the put options and the funds? Yes, so I always answer this question by saying that it depends, and it depends on how much markets fall and how fast. But in the event of an instantaneous 30% fall in global equity markets, which is our standard shock uh, scenario, we model that the put options and the two protection funds, One River and Acura, will offset around 10% of the market fall. So that's lower than it's been in recent years. Can you just talk through for people why that is? Yes, it is lower than it would have been, say, at the beginning of last year. And essentially, this is because the cost of protecting portfolios is still high. It's not as high as it was a year ago at the high point of the market turmoil, but it's certainly much higher than it was at the beginning of 2020 or for a few years before that. So we have bought a little bit of protection recently, another put option, but we're reluctant to spend a lot of option premium as it doesn't give a tremendous amount of bang for uh, for our buck. Instead, what, what, what we've been doing is reducing portfolio risk by gradually selling equities, particularly from stocks that have performed very well, such as Deer. So Hugo, I know this is your favorite question and mine as well, which is what are you excited about? Well, on balance, I think it's still in the stocks in areas which until recently have been very out of favour. So the exposure to financials, more cyclical areas such as travel and the UK market. These have been performing much better, but they they still look really cheap by most valuation metrics. So I think there's plenty more that we can see from them. Other than those areas, we're constantly evaluating new ideas. We're really looking for companies that dominate their industrial niches, ideally in spaces aren't immediately obvious or highly priced. So if if we can find the next John Deere, that would be fantastic. Uh, We're certainly turning over a lot of stones at the moment. So we're looking at platform businesses, software companies, even some parts of uh, aerospace. 
I think we'd all be happy if you found the next John Deere, UK. Although I think from memory, correct me if I'm wrong, when we first bought it, we did spend quite a few quarters defending having bought it, didn't we? So it can take time sometimes for these things to work as spectacularly well as that has over time. Well, we were told, yes, we were, we were told it was a dull tractor company and just for uh, everybody's amusement. So <laughs> it, is, it has just been included into the ARC Space Exploration ETF. So oh this is Cathy Wood's latest venture, the Space Exploration ETF, which is causing people to to uh, sort of scratch a, a few heads and wonder if we'll be seeing tractors on on Mars. But apparently, it's because they are a world leader in in the GPS in GPS yeah. um, <laughs> software. Great. Well, thank you, Hugo. Thank you all for listening to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we do always try and touch on the topics which. We think you'll be concerned or interested in uh, please do keep sending in any questions that you have to your client advisors um, and they'll obviously be happy to discuss anything that you might want to talk about in in further detail uh, please remember that our podcasts are available on spotify and apple podcasts so if you wish to receive them as soon as they're released or listen to some of our other podcasts then please subscribe to our channel on either of those platforms thank you all again for listening and stay well please note this audio content is produced by Rothschild & Co. for information purposes only. The podcast is not provided as a solicitation, recommendation or invitation to buy or sell any security, fund or any other banking or investment product. Nothing in this podcast constitutes advice of any sort and no responsibility is accepted in relation to the content accuracy or any reliance on the information provided. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and you may not recover the amount of your original investment. Past performance should not be taken as a guide to future performance. This content should only be used or reproduced with the express written permission of Rothschild & Co.